we all fear what we do not understand. And so, it is in pursuit of this knowledge that we venture (laughs) into the darkness to understand these things that are unfamiliar to us. But what happens when that knowledge comes at a cost? Join me as we venture into the darkness in pursuit of knowledge with a story I like to call The Harbringer Experiment. things we don't quite understand. Being the curious humans that we are, we naturally try and seek these things out. Doing so has led us to make remarkable discoveries and inventions we couldn't have even imagined a hundred years ago. We have defeated diseases, built to the sky itself, and even created machines that could take us beyond the clouds and into the stars. Our ancestors, if they could see us now and see what we have created, I'm sure that many of them would see us as gods. Our innate curiosity and lust for knowledge has not always led us to greatness, however. True evil and darkness have also been uncovered in humanity's conquest of knowledge. And in the end, I fear this evil will be our doom. I do not say this from a standpoint of a great philosopher who has sat and simply pondered things. Neither. No. I say this because I've seen it. Experienced it. I was part of it. The event I'm about to relate to you is true in its entirety. This much I swear. I feel certain that this will fall on deaf ears and many of you will believe this to be just another spooky tale meant to give you a cheap thrill. But I promise you that this is neither my intent nor my purpose. The purpose of this story is to simply warn you of what lurks beyond the veil of what we can see and understand, to show you what awaits us in the darkness, 
and if I myself don't quite understand it, what I'm about to tell you has happened, and it feels certain it will happen again. In 1971, a not-so-well-known scientist began preparations for an extremely secretive project known simply as the Harbringer Experiment. I would like to keep the identity of the scientist a secret for personal reasons. So, throughout the recounting, I will refer to him as Zimmerman. Zimmerman's background is unclear at best beyond 1971. All that I know is before that time, he had grown up somewhere in Maryland with a strange fascination for the occult and the supernatural. This later made him an outcast amongst his fellow scientists due to how scoffed upon the metaphysical was and still is at the time. Zimmerman's opinions concerning the otherworldly were not soul. The cause for him being an outcast. It was his methods that made him widely unaccepted amongst his peers and others. Zimmerman was well known during his time for being ruthless and cold beyond measure. He never cared about the means. All that mattered to him was results. And if he predicted the results to be valuable enough, anything would be worth obtaining them. It was this insatiable and brutal lust for the truth that made him feared amongst those that knew well of him. And the few that knew of him and did not fear him believed in him and followed him and his work very closely. The Harbringer itself has such a mysterious and intimidating taste to it. Maybe it's the way it rolls from our tongues or maybe it's simply due to its association with the project. But the word always seems to carry a certain amount of doom with it. This would make sense. The word itself means to warn or forebode. I can't imagine Zimmerman's reason for giving the experiment this title. But in retrospect, it fits Perfectly. Zimmerman came to select a few 
me being one of them. He told us he was working on something big and that he needed people who could keep up confidentiality and not spread idle gossip of his work. While he did not fully trust some of us, he did know that we were professionals. And for that reason, or some others, we were all in dire need of employment. I had worked at the local clinic as a doctor, but I was caught stealing medication and was promptly fired. This left a very dark mark on my resume, so work was hard to find. I was also a native to Alaska and lived near where the experiment would take place. So I guess you could say that I was a convenient choice. As you can imagine, I jumped at the opportunity. It was not hard when I saw the payout. Fifteen of us were hired in total. Some were colleagues of his that had been working with him for a long while. Some were maintenance workers, and a few were hired as private security. I was the only medical professional to be hired. It's still a wonder to me how he even attained the funds necessary for the experiment. I would not be wholly surprised if his financing was not entirely legal. But, legal or not, I needed the money, and he was paying. Looking back, it's a decision I have come to regret dearly. After Zimmerman obtained his money, he used it to buy a relatively large plot of land deep in the frozen wilderness of Alaska. On that piece of land, Zimmerman built a concrete structure, not dissimilar to a bunker in fact. The sole difference being that its goal was to keep any potential damage contained within its structure, rather than keeping it out. Most of the structure dug deep beneath the earth which had the effect of making the underground complex seem so much smaller than it really was from the outside. There was only one way of entering and leaving the underground structure, and it was via a ladder that led from a small, unassuming concrete building on the surface, which I will refer to from now on as the entrance building for convenience. After everyone had gone to bed that night, the hatch that contained the ladder would be sealed off with a very large and thick metal lid. 
Zimmerman was very strict about this. Located not too far away from the entrance building was a series of wooden cabins that would serve as the sleeping quarters for the staff that Zimmerman had hired. Compared to the entrance building standing on the surface, the underground system was massive. At the center of the complex was the control room. This was where all the facilities, electronics, and such were linked to. This included security cameras, lights, and door controls. Consoles, monitors, and computers lined the walls of this large central chamber. This is also where the ladder in the entrance building connected to the underground complex. Connected to the control room were three doors. One led to a smaller room that served as the infamy. The other door led to the break room and the last door led into the hallways. The hallways were where the complex began to feel extremely eerie. They were for some reason laid out in an extremely confusing scheme that led in circles and to complete dead ends. These hallways made up a vast majority of the complex and it would be very easy to get lost in the maze if you were unfamiliar with the complex. If you knew where you were going, you would find yourself standing before one of three by eight by eight foot rooms. Each room had a camera hooked up to it in one of the corners of the room. And all three of those cameras were connected to a corresponding monitor in the control room. Cameras were also scattered throughout the hallways so that whoever was watching their corresponding monitor could see anywhere they wanted to. Thick metal doors stood at the entrance to each of the three eight by eight rooms. In order to open them, you would have to enter a four digit code into the control panel located near that door. I remember when I first arrived at the complex, how badly the hallways frightened me. I have always been claustrophobic, you see, and those hallways were so very narrow. The noise, or more accurately, the lack of noise, was also a tremendous source of fear for me. Those bleak, narrow hallways. It was always so unnaturally quiet, silent, as if the entire world had stopped moving. It really made you feel like you were trapped down there. Thankfully though, I only 
only rarely ventured into those hallways, for I was the only medical professional in the facility, and I had virtually no reason to go into them. In the beginning, I found it so peculiar that Zimmerman would ask for a medical professional like me on a project like this, but by the time it was all over, I completely understood why. The official purpose of the Harbinger experiment was to test and observe the effects of extended isolation on the human mind. This is what was listed on the reports being sent out at least. But unbeknownst to all of those who were not participating in the project, excluding the subjects, the true purpose was much, much darker. Like I said before, Zimmerman had always been obsessed with the occult and the supernatural. He sought to prove himself to those who did not believe in him. He wanted physical proof the supernatural was a real phenomenon, and he wanted to be the first one to obtain said proof. The true purpose of the Harbinger experiment was to find proof of the metaphysical, a world we could not see. The thought of it was naturally a tad bit daunting and even scary. But it was Zimmerman's method of doing so that was truly terrifying. Zimmerman believed that he would be able to open a portal between worlds momentarily, allowing three random entities to cross over into our world. And each one of these beings would be trapped within one of three rooms. Zimmerman had a theory that any entity would try and latch onto the nearest living thing that had the capacity for it. He wanted to use this technique to trap a spirit in physical form by allowing it to enter a living being that had been injected with a compound mixture of Zimmerman's own creation. In theory, this compound would keep the entity from simply leaving whenever it wanted to. Once it was attached, it was for good. The only way it would be able to leave a host who had been injected with this compound was through death. According to Zimmerman, the host would have to be something living with a strong will, strong enough to survive the possession. There was only one known species that possesses the amount of willpower required for this. Humans. <laughs> <laughs>
Zimmerman had also done something to ensure that the entities would only enter three rooms and that there would only be one entity in each room. Though, I cannot say I know what exactly he did. In fact, I know next to nothing when it comes to how Zimmerman managed to do what he did. He liked to keep his methodology a secret to most, to those he trusted, his most trusted colleagues. Most likely due to his paranoia that someone would steal his ideas and take credit for the success of said ideas. If I had known that this was its true purpose before I signed up, I may have reconsidered. But Zimmerman decided not to tell us until we were all gathered at his fortress. Even if any of us wanted to leave, I doubt we would have been allowed to do so. The security team Zimmerman had hired was loyal to him. And, more importantly, the payout. It's not very likely that Zimmerman had given them any idea that any of us would be allowed to leave. So, it's not too far-fetched to believe that we would be terminated if we had any objections. There were three different subjects included in the experiment. All were native to Alaska, and each one of them lured into the program under the belief that they would be participating in a harmless study of the effects of isolation on the human mind. This was the reason why none of the subjects objected when they realized that they would be confined to one of three rooms, those that I mentioned earlier. The first subject was a young man. He was apparently out of work and desperately needed the money that had been offered for participating in the study. The second was a woman. By looking at her, I can tell she was an addict of some sort. The third and final subject was an older man. A drifter, if I had to take a guess. One thing that they all had in common was none of them had any family or friends left. In short, no one would miss them. This was the reason why they were chosen for the project. I am sorry. I wish I could supply more information about the subjects, but all of this has been drawn on from memory, and I was given so very little information on the three to begin with. Be 
experiment did not officially begin until 1987, 16 years after its original announcement. I was eager to begin, so I packed up and headed out to the complex as soon as I could. I had arrived at the complex a week before the subjects had even been signed up and a whole month before the project even began. I was not the first to arrive by any means. When I got there, Zimmerman, his colleagues, and the security team had already arrived. I suppose you could say that I was amongst the people Zimmerman did not trust to arrive first. Everyone arrived about a week before the experiment began. There was a notable rift between those who were simply there for the money, like me, and those who were followers of Zimmerman. On October 15th, 1987, all of the preparations were complete. The subjects had been sealed in their rooms. The cameras, lights, and speakers were fully operational, and all of the staff members had settled in. The time had come for the experiment to officially begin. Zimmerman asked everyone to report to the control room around 9 p.m. to witness the beginning of the experiment. He wanted everyone to be present when he proved that all of his theories had been correct and that he was not just some madman. He wanted us all to see the fruits of his labor. When everyone had finally gathered in the large control room, Zimmerman turned to us and simply said, Observe. He then turned his back to us, leaned into the microphone that would project his voice through the three rooms, and then he began chanting in a strange language that I feel certain no one but Zimmerman could understand. We all observed the three large monitors on the wall silently. We were waiting for something to happen. The subjects all stood in their rooms, dumbstruck by the chanting of Zimmerman. They were staring at the monitors with confused expressions on their faces. After about five minutes, I felt something awful. I cannot understand what exactly it was, but a feeling of horrible dread washed over me, riddling me with fear. It was then that the ground actually began to shake subtly and lights began to flicker. 
Zimmerman continued chanting into the microphone as if nothing was off or wrong, while the subjects began dashing around the rooms, screaming for help. Then, suddenly, it stopped. The ground stopped shaking, and the monitor's images turned to static. The air began to become heavy as we all stared at the monitors, waiting for them to regain their image, waiting for them to show us what was happening or had happened in those three rooms. For a while, it was all silent, but then there was screaming. The screams of a woman going through unbearable pain and terror began to echo through the compound. The similar screams of the men began to coincide with the woman's terrified screams, and together they mixed into an awful symphony of pain and fear that beat mercilessly into our ears. Those of us who were there for the money began to give each other scared looks, while those who were loyal to Zimmerman seemed completely unfazed. We wanted to leave and never come back to this awful place, but we all knew deep down Zimmerman would never allow that to happen. And we were here for the long haul. There was no escape. It was 10.13 p.m. when the screaming had finally stopped. Monitors had yet to reveal to us what had occurred in those three rooms. As soon as the screaming ended, Zimmerman stood and dismissed us all for the night. After being dismissed, we were all forbidden to come back into the compound until 10 a.m. Not like any of us wanted to. We solemnly made our way out of the compound, towards the cabins, and settled in for the night. I feel it's safe to say that not all of us slept well that night. The following morning, all of the staff had arrived at the entrance building. We stood inside, exchanging tired or nervous looks as we waited for Zimmerman to arrive and open the hatch that contained the ladder. I could see palpable fear in the eyes of some of us, while others did not seem to have been even remotely affected by what had happened last night. Zimmerman showed up five minutes after 10, apologizing for his tardiness as he came through the door of the entrance building. He opened the hatch and, without any hesitation, began descending the ladder down into the black abyss. 
he almost seemed jovial, enthusiastic. I was the first to follow behind Zimmerman's dark descent into the facility. It seemed that the farther I climbed down, the more the darkness closed in on me, as if it was trying to swallow me whole. As I climbed deeper, I couldn't help but feel that this place was different somehow. Well, before there was only the unsettling concrete hallways and rooms. Now, there was something else. Something made the eeriness feel so real, so personified. I felt like a horrible and gruesome scene awaited us down there. But I continued climbing downward. Despite my fear and my hesitation, This was no longer just a spooky bunker. There was a darkness and a malevolence in the air. A true evil now lived here and I could feel it. We all could. I finally felt my foot touch ground and let out a silent sigh of relief just to be on solid ground once more. Almost as if on cue, the light bulbs came alive, dousing the room in their warm and welcome light. Zimmerman must have turned on the power, I thought. I allowed myself to take a couple of seconds to examine the control room. It was exactly how we left it last night which I gave a silent and thankful prayer. It was almost as if nothing unusual had ever happened. I shook myself from my thoughts as I remembered the static-filled monitors from the night before. I let my eyes slowly make their way towards the monitors on the wall anticipating the grim and fearful scene that would be on them. My attention was first grabbed by monitor one and three, which were still pure static. It would have been a small relief, but then the motionless images on monitor two caught my eye. Room two was completely, entirely, still, and everything seemed entirely untouched. I couldn't help but gasp as I noticed that the only thing that was different, the woman lay in the center of the small concrete room, and the expression of fear and terror was frozen onto her gaunt face as she lay silent lifeless. Zimmerman's expression turned angry when he saw this. 
he ordered that second monitor be turned off. And it was. Why didn't we ask? We should have asked why. It's not like any of us wanted to see the dreadful scene any longer, but still. He also ordered that if the images on the monitor, one and three, did not return within the next two hours, the security team would be sent in to investigate the rooms. The security team nodded at hearing this. They made it seem as if they had no fear, but I could see it in their eyes. The subtlety, loud, tick-tock of the clock was the only sound that echoed throughout the control room while we stared at the monitors. An hour and 50 minutes had gone by, and static was still all that occupied monitors one and three. All of the other staff members were working except me. This was due to the fact that the project had been completely uninjured. No one needed my services thus far. So, I essentially had nothing to do but wait for someone to hurt themselves. Zimmerman, a couple of his colleagues, and I were the only ones to occupy the room. They quietly chatted amongst each other on the other side of the room while I spent my time reading and pondering the situation I currently found myself in. I had completely cleared my mind. And in that epiphany, I realized I had clearly made a mistake coming here. The corpse lying in the room was evidence of this. And God only knew what awaited us in rooms one and three. My thoughts were soon interrupted as monitor 3's images returned. The clear image now displayed on the screen made everyone's eyes noticeably widen. What was displayed on monitors was horrifying. A humanoid thing stood in the center of the room, staring directly at the camera, unmoving. It was wearing the jumpsuit of the subject that had been wearing it, but this clearly was not the same man that had entered the room. What caught my attention was his eyes. They were solid black and twice the size of a normal human's eyes. They seemed so, so endless and cold. Its head had also grown with its eyes in such a symmetrical and unsettling manner. The being had also shed all of its hair, 
from the monitor, I could see how unnaturally smooth and clear his skin was. It had also seemingly grown in height and stature, which could be seen in the fact that the jumpsuit was now obviously far too small for its wearer. Its limbs had grown especially long. Its arms hung almost as low as the creature's knees. What were we looking at? This was in no way the same man we had sent inside. Fear. Fear was all I felt as I continued to stare at the monitor at this thing in the room. And my fears seemed to be shared by those around me, which made me feel kind of good. It may sound awful, but it was a bit satisfying to see that Zimmerman and his colleagues could feel fear too. But at the same time, it was worrying because this showed that this was not part of Zimmerman's plan. Something had gone wrong. We all stared into the monitor at the thing despite our fear. It was almost as if we were entranced. My already present fear began to grow and spread rapidly throughout my body as I became lost in the creature's eyes, trapped in its terrifyingly hypnotic gaze. After what felt like forever, I managed to break eye contact with the creature and divert my attention from the monitor. And when I did so, I felt my fear levels drop considerably. After a short while, Zimmerman ordered his security team to make their way to Subject One's door, as he said he would do. The security team left without any question, armed with only batons and pistols. I focused my attention on watching the men's progress throughout the hallways towards Subject One's room via the cameras. Even though the not so highly qualified cameras, it wasn't hard to tell that these men were afraid of what awaited them. Their heads were downcast as they walked. They did not possess the same confidence within them that they did when this project began. They looked like scared boys being sent off into a terrible war. Eventually, they made their way to the door. We had a perfect view of them. The doorway's camera made this clear. One of them said something, though one of their walkie-talkies had made 
a motion towards the camera. In response, one of Zimmerman's colleagues buzzed open the door. The men already had their pistols out by the time the button was pushed. Slowly the door began to open. We watched eagerly as the men began to approach the door, guns armed inside. Suddenly, and without warning, there was a loud shriek and something bounded out of the room out the men. The monitor turned to static immediately. We could hear screaming echoing down the hallways, followed shortly after by the distinct sounds of gunshots. We could do nothing but wait. After a couple of minutes, screaming and the gunshots stopped. We all waited and prayed, hoping that whatever bound from the room would not be the one to return to the control room. After a couple of more minutes, three of the men came back, carrying with them the corpse of the fourth. He had a massive cut covering his chest and his face was shredded. You couldn't even tell who he was anymore or even that he was human. I was used to gore, being a doctor and all, but this was something else. I felt somewhat unfazed by the mass of shredded flesh and bloodied meats they had carried back with them, but many of the others went pale and vomited. The security team all wore emotionless expressions and eyes filled with such terror. One of the men finally looked up at us. He stared at us for a while with those wide eyes of his. It's dead. He finally managed to mutter in a shaken, scared, yet stern voice. A couple of hours went by. The dead man's name was Frank. He was buried inside a cold and dark place in the Alaskan ground. Two of the men were unarmed, physically at least. The third was alive, but only barely. His body was covered in bloody slashes and one of his eyes had been gouged out. I managed to stabilize him, but only just barely. 
the other two men vaguely explained what had happened. Apparently, Subject One leapt at Frank after the door had opened. Only, it wasn't really Subject One anymore. According to them, it had a hideously contorted face and long, sharp claws. They claimed to have shot it over a dozen times before it fell, and then they simply emptied another dozen bullets into it just to be sure it was really dead. Only, once it was dead, did they realize what they had done. What they had really done. tended to the wounded man I went to investigate the monitors as afraid as I was of seeing what those monitors may have held I needed to see subject 3 was the only one left now and I needed to see it to make sure the creature was still in its room it seemed to be more like a jail cell than an ordinary room at this point, which was probably a good thing. The cameras displaying Subject 1's room and the hallways outside still displayed static. No one was sent to repair them or investigate. We just had to hope that Subject one was well and truly dead. Monitor three's image was exactly the same as I had left it. Subject three was still staring directly into the camera at us. He was still in the exact same position. And if not for the small fan in the corner of the room, would think I was looking at a still image. In a way, I felt relief at seeing this. Relief that he was still in his room, that he had not escaped while no one was looking. After everything quieted down, I noticed something especially unusual. There was a sound, strange sound emanating from somewhere. At first, it was barely noticeable. The only reason I heard it was because of how extremely quiet it was in the infirmary. But as time went by, it slowly began to increase in volume. After about an hour, it was loud enough that everyone could hear it too. And after a couple of more hours, its volume had increased so much that we could determine what the noise was. It was a song. One of the staff members had identified it as Living in the Sunlight by Tiny Tim.
Apparently, his father loved this song and listened to it quite frequently. The song seemed to be on a loop and kept replaying itself. Although we were able to identify the noise, we remained unable to identify its source. We knew that it wasn't coming from the speakers because we had turned them off. It seemed to be emanating from the walls themselves. More time ticked by as we all began to become increasingly agitated by the song. I spent most of my time in the infirmary attending to Frank or in the control room. Fear hung in the air and the presence of this unmistakable darkness and evil was no doubt its source. Subject three had still not yet moved. He had kept his unblinking, unbroken gaze fixed on the camera the entire time. It always felt like he was staring directly at me. No matter where I was. I think this effect was also felt by the others due to the fact that they seemed to move around the room a lot and for seemingly no reason. After a few hours, the song was so loud that people almost had to shout in order to communicate with each other. We had been trying to find its source so that we could turn the song off, but it was to no avail. The source was still completely unidentifiable. This added a level of extreme irritation to our already very present fear. It was around 8.30 that the ground itself began to shake once more, just as it had done the previous night. Panic began to spread amongst my fellow employees and me as the shaking began to grow intensely. During this, I had a sudden instinctual feeling to look over at Subject 3's monitor. It was gone. Almost as if on cue, the power went out. And thankfully, the song did as well. Ever since the security team came back, panic had slowly been building up amongst the staff and Zimmerman. He was powerless to stop it. When those lights went out, the calm projections that had been on everyone's mind had left us. And fear began to take over all of our hearts. The emergency backup lights kicked in shortly after the power went out, which gave a silent, thankful prayer for her. The lights were dim, but they still allowed me to see a lot. Total panic had seized us 
as many of my fellow staff members began screaming and rushing to the ladder in an attempt to escape. But too many were trying to use it at once and no one was able to get very far on the ladder without someone else pulling them down to the floor and taking their place. Zimmerman was shouting for everyone to calm down, but his dominating and intimidating personality had no effect here, and his demands fell on deaf ears. It was total chaos. It wasn't long until people actually started hurting each other in their desperate attempts to get up the ladder and out of this place. I could only stand against the wall and wait for my opportunity to escape up the ladder. All the screams were soon silenced as the familiar hum of that unsettling song began to rise in volume once again, only much quicker this time. And this time, it was clear that the noise was coming directly from the maze. People stopped fighting and shouting as all of our attention shifted to the door that led into the hallways. The song quickly got louder than it had ever been before, which forced many of us to cuff our ears with our hands in an attempt to silence the noise. Then, Suddenly, the song completely stopped. Silence was all that filled the room as we stared at the metal doors in anticipation of what was coming. It felt like ages had gone by, but in reality, it was probably only seconds before the silence was broken. The door suddenly burst open violently and the music started again, louder than it had ever been before. The suddenness and the volume of this caused many of us to recoil and fall to the ground, grabbing our ears in an attempt to block out the noise. I glanced up for a second and in the doorway stood a tall, smooth skinned figure with long limbs and eyes so dark and malevolent that you could see, see them in the dim lighting. After I got my bearings, I looked upward at the creature once again, just in time to see the thing pick up Zimmerman and in one fluid motion, dousing the room and everyone in his blood, intestines and organs everywhere. I was no stranger to gore, but the sight of this was too much even for me to bear. I hunched over immediately after seeing this and vomited all over the cold concrete floor. is my only hope for survival. I thought this to myself as I forced myself up 
into a standing position. And as my eyes rose along with the rest of me, I could see the thing ripping and tearing through the people as they scattered in an attempt to escape. It was distracting. And as awful as this sounds, this was my only chance to get up that ladder. I forced my legs to move towards the ladder, trying to block out the terrified screams of my fellow staff members and unbearingly loud music. I could hear gunshots coinciding with the screams and terrible sounds of flesh being ripped and torn apart somewhere in the mess of the noise. I reached my hands outwards and felt a wave of relief wash over me as my fingertips came in contact with the hard metal rungs of the ladder. I gripped them and began to climb upwards as quickly as I could in my disorientated state all the while praying that the monster would not see me and pull me off the ladder and back down into the slaughter. It felt like any moment I would feel one of its smooth hands wrap around my ankles and pull me to my death. But I eventually made it to the top. There was no question in my mind I had to close and seal that thing down there, even if it meant certain death for all of my colleagues. I could not allow that thing to escape. I gripped the thick metal lid and began to push with all of my might in an attempt to seal the thing underground in that complex forever. Despite how dense and sturdy it was, the lid was surprisingly easy to move and did not take much effort at all to push over the hatch. Even in my weakened state, it was relatively easy. In seconds, the hatch was completely covered by the dense metal lid. I collapsed on my side and began to vomit some more as exhaustion overtook me. As I lay there, I realized something. Aside from my labored breaths, the only thing I could hear was the faint echo of that song from below. I felt as though I would lose more of my sanity if I continued to lay there and listen to that song. So I once again forced myself to my feet and began to make my way to the wooden lodge. It was there where I had left my baggage and so also where I had left my keys to my truck. Of the 15 staff members that took part in the forsaken experiment, I am the only one that survived. I have never returned to that awful place where all of this had happened, and I don't intend to. The project was very secretive, and Zimmerman was the only one who knew all of its details.
as far as I know. No one is aware of my involvement aside from me. In fact, I am probably the only one who knows that the Harbinger experiment was truly, truly dark. Let alone what had actually happened. By now, you're probably wondering why I've told you all of this. About something none of you should be aware of. Maybe you're expecting me to give you a speech about not messing with things you don't understand or something along those lines. I hope not, for I have no such speech, nothing to give, no lesson to impart. I began hearing a noise earlier today. Almost immediately I recognized the noise as a very haunting and familiar song. I didn't even try to trace it to its source. I knew it would be pointless. And as the day progressed, the song has increased in volume. It's loud enough now that I can very clearly make out the lyrics. I'm completely unable to escape Tiny Tim's voice. Followed me everywhere I've gone. Subject three is coming for me. And I know my time left in this world is extremely limited now. I guess you could say that I just wanted to tell the tale of the Harbringer experiment before it was lost forever. that you will take some lesson from what I have recounted to you, but I think we both know you won't. Let's be honest. You don't believe a single word I've told you. And I don't blame you. I wouldn't believe me if I were you either. To you, this is nothing more than something to get your cheap thrills from. You were probably mindlessly surfing the internet when you clicked the link and found yourself here, wherever here may be, reading this story. And to be honest, I don't care if you believe me or not. Even if you do, probably won't stop you from trying to uncover the truth of a darkness that few of us have ever seen. It certainly never stopped Zimmerman. If you want a lesson, look at what happened to him when he went seeking for the truth. pray that none of you will ever discover this truth. I pray that none of you ever have to see the evil I've seen.
hope you get to live in ignorance of what lies just beyond the veil of what we can understand. It's here now. I can feel its black eyes burning into me just as I could all those years ago. I am as much to blame as Zimmerman is for the monstrosity that is now free to roam the world. Even if I was not the one to create it. I'm sorry. Please. Forgive me. I once again like to thank you for making it this far. I understand that the story tonight was a little bit long but I felt as though it would have done better than being split into parts. If you are new here and you like the content, please subscribe. If you've already subscribed, then feel free to comment. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, any ideas that you want for the channel. And by all means, if you can, everyone feel free to share. We could always use a few more. Anyhow, guys, thank you once again. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>